0: With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd
1: Tell. So have you heard tell about the opioid epidemic? It's still going on. It's still really bad. And even with all the other crises we have going on, whether it's COVID or the economy or politics or what have you, unabatedly, this opioid crisis is still going on and it's taking a dreadful human toll. I I don't even want to quote the statistics on it because I think when we hear numbers like 90,000 plus that died of overdoses last year, it's just numb to us. Now, I don't know that statistics really bring out what's going on in these communities and disproportionately in certain communities across the country. Now, last week, the Senate actually had a hearing about this, and one of the people that testified in that was a friend of ours, Dr. Keith Humphreys. he spent his whole career working on issues like addiction, the opioid crisis, things like this. He's the Esther Ting Memorial Professor at Stanford University. He served as a senior policy advisor at the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy during the Obama administration, And also, like me, he's a fellow West Virginian, so when we hear these things about the opioid crisis in places like Appalachian and West Virginia, it's personal for him, too, because, like me, that's home. So somebody like him who's been in politics, who's been in the White House with it, who's been in the halls of Congress, like we saw last week testifying about it, should be the perfect person to bring in and try to get some talk and some grown folk discussion about the opioid crisis. Turning down the noise on what some folks on social media just dismiss as, oh, those drug people have what's coming to them, and not realizing how this is absolutely ripping the guts out of communities far beyond just the person who has the addiction issues. What's the role of government in that? Can government do anything about it? What's the role of individuals, both in their homes and in their communities, to try to improve on this? Why isn't just throwing money at it going to fix a problem like this? We're going to talk to Dr. Humphreys about this because he's been doing it for 20, 30 years. He's the expert. We're going to learn and listen and hopefully get to some answers on what we can do about something that is brutal, it's awful, and it needs to be made very, very human to us and not just stats on the screen. So that's what we're going to do on today's herd Tell, The Opioid Crisis, with Dr. Keith Humphreys from Stanford University right after this. I'm really honored and privileged to get to talk to Dr. Keith Humphreys. Sir, how are you? I appreciate your time today.
0: Doing very well and delighted to talk to you, Andrew. After, after following you on Twitter for a long time, this is a real treat.
1: I, I, one of the fun things of doing this is I get to actually meet the people I've met on Twitter and become friends with on Twitter. So you're one of them. I appreciate it. You, you have uh, folks that don't follow you on Twitter. They need to. Uh, you have a usually a pun of the morning, which is always really, really fun in a heavy day. How did you get to doing puns? And you like black and white monster movies. Is that why you want to do Examine a Career in the Human Mind? Is that where all <laughs> that started or?
0: Uh, well, the pun thing is, I think, just an occupational hazard of being a dad. You know, it's just – and uh, when your kids – are my, my boys are teenagers now. You know, when they're little, they appreciate them, and then they just roll their eyes when they're teenagers. So I just – I guess I was seeking a more appreciative audience. I noticed mainly other dads tend to like my puns. I'm not sure anybody else does. Guilty. It's just some, something fun to do. Uh, yeah, and the movie thing is just, uh, you know, I – I'm 55 and uh, you know when the first uh, videotapes came out of movies the library in in my hometown Morgantown West Virginia had had old movies and I just seen like magic you could just go down there and get them for free and watch them and I got into the habit of doing it it became a lifelong thing so I've always uh, you know I I uh, Love love watching them. I love learning about them, and and I love writing about them. And um, yeah, if if, if if there are any movie buffs, I, I have a I have a site. It's called All Good Movies, which my boys built for me as a pandemic project. And it takes all the reviews I I wrote uh, for I used to write for Washington Monthly magazine and a, and a website called Same Facts, run by Mark Kleinman. Uh And uh, that's they're all put together. And you know, it's just it's it's fun. I enjoy. it It's funny because I don't watch TV really, but I I, I will always watch a movie.
1: Yeah, I'm saying you have to do things like that from your day job to be sane. Like, I do all the food stuff a lot on, online, so. Yeah, um, yeah,
0: right, exactly. It's,
1: it, I tell people all the time, I, they're like, well, why do you do that? I was like, well, mostly I do it for me, to be honest, because I just, <laughs> you know, you just want to feel human for a minute sometimes.
0: But... Yeah, it, you know, it's funny. People said to me, like, how do you have the time to watch a movie and then write about it? It's like, And the truth is, I genuinely find it relaxing. It's not Absolutely. work to me. Um, it's not like my day job.
1: Uh, and that day job, you are a eminently credentialed and learned individual. But uh, the reason we wanted to talk to you today is, is the opioid epidemic. You're an expert on this for a lot of reasons. But just for the audience, tell them, how did a nice West Virginia boy like you travel from Sanford to be in front of a Senate panel here about a week ago talking about the opioid epidemic?
0: and and without being under indictment that's the best way to, to appear in front of a no center. arts more <laughs> issues there good well well done sir so i have studied addiction now for over 30 35 years um and ever since i got my first job in the field which was entirely because i was, I was literally i was slipping burgers and as a college student, and, and uh, there was a job open on an addiction research project that paid another dollar an hour, and I, I wanted that dollar. That's how I got into the field, but then once I did, it's an incredibly fascinating uh, topic, both because how important it is, and we see this with all the, the impact on our society of the opioid crisis, but it's also just fascinating as a scientific question, like, what is it about people that we will aggressively pursue use of these you know, various chemicals uh, that kill us? And, and that is sort of an, an enduring intellectual mystery, and so I've been you know grappling with that now through my through my education and then since the time I've been out in uh, in California, and I I studied actually mostly more alcohol and and then a bit uh, cocaine early in my career, but the opioid crisis calls us all in this field to really focus on that, and that's been what I've been doing much more the last decade or so, and. Uh, the committee I testified in front of is called the Senate International Narcotics Control Committee, and it's a, it's one of the. Uh, there are still bipartisan uh, endeavors in Washington, despite what you may hear, and it's a long-running uh, bipartisan group of the uh, opioid crisis and how terrifying it is to be, you know, losing, you know, conservatively, uh, you know, ninety-three thousand people for drug overdoses, most of that uh, to opioids, and also the jump in overdoses is the biggest we've ever seen. It was up by almost a third. That's never happened before. So they wanted to take a look at like, what is the Biden administration doing? And then just what more generally should we be doing? So they had some some of Biden's folks, and then they had people like me who are not in government, but who talk to government a lot and do science to say, you know, uh, what could we possibly do about this? And I was glad to see the high level of engagement. Sometimes, I've testified Congress a number of times, sometimes you get the feeling they're they're just going through the motions and maybe there's only one person in the room or you know one or two. But I think there were six senators at, at, uh, who, who showed up, and they're, they're very busy people, um, and they were engaged. So I, I get the sense Washington is getting engaged, even though COVID, of course, is commanding a lot of attention. That's totally understandable. But uh, the opioid crisis has to be rising up in their minds and should be, given how many people are losing.
1: And on a practical level, for somebody like me who does a lot of politics and culture writing, we rightfully bash Congress frequently for all their silliness. When we see a hearing, it's usually some kind of a circus-type thing, especially the last few years when we've seen these hearings. But that's not what this was. This seems like there's actually some some things. What are you practically trying to get when you go to a hearing like this? Is it the networking with the staffers? Is it the FaceTime with the senators? Is it the the elevation of the issue in the public mind? What what practically going forward do you hope to get out of this? Because you said this is one of the rare instances of bipartisanship. You feel like they're engaged. You feel like there's some pressure starting to come in where we're going to get something out of this. So what are you looking for when you go to a hearing like this and testify?
0: So, I mean, you're right about hearings in general, particularly once they started being televised, the incentives to grandstand uh, goes up, and that's not just, doesn't affect just uh, members, it can affect witnesses as well. Um, So that certainly happens sometimes, and we all see hearings that seem to be completely non-substantive. But this particular group uh, was not like that at all. Uh, they, were, they were dead serious, and they also had strong working relationships with each other. That was really evident. Why do you testify at all? Why do I do this? Um, I do it, honestly, partly to learn. I listen carefully to what other witnesses say. They are generally experts. Uh, I want to hear what the senators or, or if it's in the House, the, the, the members of uh, uh, the House are, are thinking, and what their staffs are thinking. Uh, and then it's a way to build a relationship, as you said. So, I mean, hearings are short, you know, maybe it's like an hour or two, um, but it's a chance to, you engage with the staff before the hearing and uh, after the hearing, I'm still in touch with those folks, and sometimes you can then have a more enduring impact on legislation, for example. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, wor- I'm working with them now about uh, the challenge of synthetic drugs, things like fentanyl. Uh, that, don't derive from agriculture, and it presents really new challenges for drug control. Um, but ha- having an ongoing discussion, and then once you get those built, then you can say, you know, as a scientist, I can say, hey, do you know there's this new study out from, you know, Austria, and they, you know, cut off this precursor chemical, and deaths went down this much. You guys know about that, um, and they also then reach out to me on things like we're writing a, a bill on. Uh, whether we should schedule fentanyl analogs, what do you think, what is the evidence, who should we be talking to, that kind of thing, and it becomes a collaboration. And that's another reason to do hearings. It's, it's, um, you could think of it almost like a job interview in a way. Um, you, know, you, you show that you, you care, you can um, have good ideas, and you work hard, and you behave yourself and all that, and then uh, there are opportunities to, to make an impact in the longer term.
1: Talk about the fentanyl thing, because when you state that number, that 90,000 plus from the last year in overdose deaths, there's no way to talk about that number without discussing this new kind of synthetics. Uh, We kind of use fentanyl. Is is that kind of become a blanket term for a lot of things or what? Because that seems to keep coming up over and over and over again. And all the experts you hear and even the, the families of the victims are like, this is not like stuff we've ever seen before. This is not what you normally think of as illicit drug use. This is a whole different beast.
0: Yes, that is correct. So until very recently, all the street opioids derived ultimately from agriculture, quite literally the, the opium poppy plant. That's where you get morphine. That's where you get uh, heroin. That's where you get divert- the diverted pills like, you know, Vicodin or whatever are, are still in some ways drawn from poppy plants or poppy straw. Um, fentanyl, and which is a shorthand for a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch of fentanyls, which we'd actually say, you know, you know fur, fentanyl, car, fentanyl, and so on, um, are not tied to agriculture. They are entirely synthetic. You can make them in the sink. And that means a lot of things we typically think about in drug policy, like, well, where's this being grown? Where's the 7,000 uh, mile long supply line that we could interdict? Um, you know, is it, it, is the, are the farms run by a warlord? Should we be spraying the hillsides to kill the plants? It's all irrelevant now. And in fact, it's possible for someone who's say, you know, dealing fentanyl and, you know, Hunting to West Virginia, they don't even need to have a trafficker connection anymore. They can create what they want right there in Huntington, and uh, that makes it much harder from a law enforcement viewpoint to do anything about it. Uh, And the 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 other important feature about them is just the potency is off the charts. Um, Fentanyl is you know dramatically many times stronger than heroin. You know if you if, if I Sometimes when I give talks, I say, uh, hold up my hand, I say, if I just covered the back of my pinky nail uh, with fentanyl and inhaled it, that would probably be the last thing any of you saw me do, uh, you know, unless, unless 911 uh, brought the, the EMS people with naloxone no right away. It's super potent, and uh, both in terms of the reinforcement people get, you get that rush euphoria, but also in its ability to suppress breathing. That's the other thing and opioids do. They relieve pain. They create euphoria, <clears throat> and they slow down your, your body systems, particularly your respiration. That's what kills most people. And that is just uh, a slaughter we're seeing across the United States with fentanyl. It's the most common drug now uh, in, in overdose deaths. Uh, it used to be the case that these that the synthetic deaths were, were heavily concentrated in the Midwest, Appalachia, New England. Just in the last two years, we've seen a big-time breakout of fentanyl west of the Mississippi. So we're having a lot of deaths in Dallas and Denver and Houston and Los Angeles and San Francisco and Seattle. And these deaths are are not just of naive users. There's some of that. People have no tolerance to drugs and they take a pill like they think it's something else but it's actually press fentanyl and it kills them. Some of these folks have been using opioids for 30 years. They're long, long time heroin users uh, and yet uh, when they use fentanyl, knowingly or unknowingly, it overwhelms even their very highly established tolerance, and uh, very tragically, uh, they die. And that's happening all over, um, particularly in our cities, but also in some rural areas. And and you know, in in I'm I'm living about I don't know 50 miles south of San Francisco. I, I know that in San Francisco we we lost more homeless people to fentanyl than COVID. Uh, since COVID started, so it gives you wow. a sense of how devastating it is. Yeah,
1: why are we so numb to the numbers? I mean, you you, you deal with the human mind. Uh, you've also ran in government circles, as we've established. What what is it that we just can't? Maybe it's some of it's the COVID era now, where we just get numb to the screen graphics. But you would think a number like ninety thousand people dead would penetrate, but it just doesn't. Why? Is there a mental block to that? Is it a social block to that because of the type of people or at least the stigma and stereotype of the type of people that die of drug overdose? Why can't that get any kind of penetration?
0: Yeah, I think there's all kinds. I mean, everything you're saying and more, you know, goes into that. There's an interesting thing. People like Daniel Kahneman, who won a Nobel Prize studying how human beings fail to reason well, you know, showing things like if you describe one child with a disease, and, at, and and vividly and ask people how much money would you donate to help that child you know they say whatever they give i'd give 50 bucks and then you say okay now ten thousand kids have the disease how many how much would you donate they'll say uh, 50 bucks you know they they don't sympathize with numbers and say so like how could that be you're saying the other you know all those other kids lives are valueless it's like well but i don't know who they are it's just it's just a t- statistic so part of it is the representations of like who is the signal person that we can you know imagine as as typical, and do we identify with them or not? And with addiction, many people don't, um, you know, and, and partly, you know, to be fair, in the face of addiction, people often do things that are bad, that are frightening, you know, they have disproportionate uh, chance of uh, you know engaging in violence or other behavior that puts people at risk. They uh, can be very frustrating, interpersonally. They can be disappointing uh, to if you know if it's your parent or it's your 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 spouse or your your kids. And so that there's a lot of a lot of anger uh, about that based on people's life experience. And then it's just a very stigmatized condition anyway. You know, people see it as weakness. Um, you know, you shouldn't have. Um, you know, if, if if you were a strong person, you never would have got hooked on your oxycontin, and you would just quit. Um, and uh, that's, that's really easy to say, um, but um, it's very, very hard to do because uh, these drugs um, have a, have really potent effects on our brain, and people can't just walk away like that, not, not just because of the fact of withdrawal, which they would have, but also um, you know repeated administration uh, builds up um, uh, a lot of desire and urges and also weakens our ability to exercise self-control and all those things. So it's it's a very hard thing to stop, but but the public doesn't necessarily see it that way, and so they're not as sympathetic, and I hate to say this, but at least some people would say when they see someone die from an overdose, well, good, that person got what was coming to them.
1: They say that. I see that all over social media in the realms that I work in where I'm commentating and online a lot, and the reason that drives me absolutely up the wall and frustrates me so much and I get angry talking about it is... Because those deaths are not in a vacuum. And when you're talking about regions like, you know, they'll say that about the homeless in a major city. When you're talking about a region like where we come from in Appalachia in West Virginia, you start talking about small towns. If you wipe out one or two families in a small town, that's a massive effect on that community. That's resources that are already scarce. That's medical resources. That's law enforcement resources. The These things don't happen just in a vacuum. You've done lots of research on this with addiction, these are, these are bombs that go off in these families and communities, and they have a large blast radius, and the, and the stigma needs to start taking that into effect, does it not?
0: You're, no, you're absolutely right. I was just reading a story today about Huntington, um, where, where the mayor there is Steve Williams, a friend of mine, so I sort of follow, follow what goes on there. And it was a story about the, the big lawsuits they're having against the opioid distributors who shipped just millions and millions of pills to, to Huntington. And it said just kind of blandly, one in ten people in Huntington is addicted to opioids. It's like you know, it's like almost inconceivable. One in ten people. What happens to the community when one in ten people is addicted to opioids? Economically, socially, uh, the level of safety. You know, the, the what happens to the schooling? You know, how do the hospitals even keep up? the the you know uh, the EMS you know running out of naloxone because so many people are dying you know so it, it it is really destructive and and I also just want to say that lots and lots of very very decent terrific people get addicted it, it is just not true that um, you know that that people get addicted have you know an addictive personality or weakness of character and all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, every type of person you've ever met, there's someone like that who's uh, experienced addiction. I mean, people who are responsible, irresponsible, well-organized, poorly organized, high-achieving, low-achieving, they're very strong drugs. And we are evolved to uh, react to them. And um, you should really, I I, I think people need to check their assumptions about uh, how many people are addicted. It may be hidden, you may not realize it, that the you know, the person you respect who seems to have it all together, um, you know, isn't addicted. But, you know, there's a lot of it that uh, happens in, you know, what, what they would say in Western you know, in good families, right? You know, when they use that expression. It, right. it, it's it's everywhere.
1: And I know you've mentioned it twice. I know the Huntington area well. That's where I was working out of the last couple of years. I was still working before my life changed. Um, the tri-state area, we're talking, what, 90,000 people probably in the Huntington, Southport, Ashland, Chesapeake area. Uh-huh. If you're talking 1 in 10, you're talking eight, 9,000 people in an area that's not—that's that, overwhelming for hospital systems. That's overwhelming. And now we're seeing uh, the opioid trial in Huntington. This is kind of a novel thing that a lot of people are paying attention to, where you have a municipality, the city of Huntington, Cabell County— suing these opioid makers directly because they're saying, hey, you dumped 81 million pills into this area. It's just a stat. Again, we're just numb to the stats. Uh, we don't have a verdict on this lawsuit yet. Obviously, they're trying to recoup a massive amount of money for direct funding right back into their city, where usually that would go to a state or a federal level. Where Do you see this as a, as a path forward for cities to kind of try to take these on directly? Is this a test case? Is this a one-off? How does it land with you?
0: It's a very interesting case um, because there is a you know emerging national settlement where everybody's you know is wrapped up into a class action and Cabell County and Huntington decided to go it uh, on their own um, because they felt they could uh, you know get a more equitable settlement. I mean one thing that happens in these really massive uh, settlements is if you're a particularly hard-hit place like Huntington certainly is you don't necessarily uh, get uh, extra compensation, and and I and I can imagine being concerned about that. Um, you have to; they have to endure extra resource costs to mount these cases because the folks on the other side have virtually unlimited funds to defend themselves, and I'm sure they've got a gazillion high-priced lawyers um, defending uh, the the distri- distribution companies. And I don't know what's going to happen. Obviously, I want uh, I, I want us to win, um, and and I want those resources. In, uh, in that city and in that county and if they win that will uh, I think help put the fear of God into the distributors because that would make other cities and counties say we don't need to settle for a class action suit we can do a human wave attack and you know and all sue individually so it's really going to be it's really going to be consequential uh, when that decision comes down. And, and also, by the way, it's, it's worth noting that this, the suits against uh, the Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family is uh, to be announced by Judge Drain in seven days. And that's going to be another really important one to watch, uh, particularly whether or not they force the family out of the opioid business or just close the Purdue Pharma company and let them continue to sell opioids through other companies that they own, which is one of the things I talked to the Senate about, you know, they own a company called Mundi Pharma that promotes Oxycontin all over the world using the same tactics that are now illegal here. That really needs to stop uh, if you don't want this opioid epidemic to just become a pandemic.
1: And you talked about these companies being international companies now. You mentioned it in your testimony that they're doing, we can look overseas at some of the things they're doing and learn lessons from that as well. What, what, you know, let's be adults here. We understand if all the cities that are affected by this all start suing at once, there's only going to be so much money to go around. Where do you think the next front in this war goes after that? And again, we're assuming because we don't have a verdict here, but is we talk about these government partnerships. What's the role of government in these things? Is it going to be at the city level, the state level, the federal level going through? Where do you think the next front on this is? Because there seems to be a little bit of innovation on the local and municipal levels with things like drug courts and integrations of the probationary system Mm -hmm. into treatment programs. You're talking at the federal level last week at the Senate hearing. Is it all the above? Is it more one or the other? Where do you think we're going next to kind of pronosticate a little bit?
0: Yeah. So, um, on it it, it sort of. It really depends on the the powers each level of government has. So on a specific question of should we allow the Sackler family to do everything they did here with OxyContin all over the rest of the world, that's got to be the federal government. You know, it's got to be something you're not going to, you know, Huntington is never going to stop a multinational corporation around the world. But the U.S. government has powers to do that. Another place where the federal government is powerful is in healthcare so um law enforcement in, in the united states is generally a state, state and local matter but uh healthcare is not particularly because you got medicaid you got medicare you got the va you got the military health system you have the community health centers you got the indian health service all of which run by the federal government so it can be a major player um, by integrating the care of addiction into everything that it does and that means the system it runs itself uh, they can build those services, and some of them have so, you know, um, already, but also as a, a financer of care. You know, it should be the case that if someone needs, uh, you know, say I've been addicted to my Vicodin, and I come in and tell my primary care doctor that, it should very much be the case that, you know, my Medicaid, my Medicare, or my Blue Cross or Blue Shield, which the federal government regulates insurance plans uh, along with states, uh, that it covers it. And uh, so that kind of leadership, in, in which I've said this many times to Congress and to uh, two different White Houses now, is, is critical. Pulling addiction in like we thinking about it, like we think about cancer or heart disease. In other words, it's not a crisis that, that if we just work hard and, you know, provide a little extra money for two years, it will go away. It's an enduring feature of human health, and the healthcare system has to be permanently equipped to deal with it. And that means it has to be permanently financed to deal with it, because that's the way our system works. It runs on money.
1: And there's two issues with that, especially where we come from in West Virginia. Uh, these poor rural areas, one is addiction treatment centers are not cheap to run, so it's kind of hard to get them in places where there ain't a, you know, I hate to put it this way, but there just ain't a clientele base to make them perpetual. And then you run into things like we saw the news story last week out of Clarksburg, West Virginia, where the city council just votes you can't put an addiction center inside of our city limits. Uh, Mm. This is part of the healthcare thing that doesn't sometimes we don't talk about because it's not a it's not a medical side of it. It's just a practical human side of trying to get through to people. How do you approach those sorts of things where just like you can't put an addiction center in our in our area or talking to maybe a private or a public partnership with these addiction centers of, hey, this is going to have to operate at a loss. How do we figure out how to do that through whether it's funding or grants or fundraising or what have you?
0: Yeah, you know, that's really heartbreaking about Clarksburg because of course there's families in Clarksburg that need it and I guarantee at least some of the people who cheered this are in a year or two going to find out their kid is addicted or their their friend is addicted and be really angry that there's no services available for them. Um, So it's very short-sighted. It has happened in other places too. Um, You know, advocacy really matters. I also think the stories of people in recovery matter. There are you know, studies estimate there's about 23 million give or take Americans who are in recovery from uh, a serious problem with alcohol or other drugs I find that they are really potent destigmatizers and really good spokespeople and there was someone at the hearing actually I'm proud to say a friend of mine Tom Coderre who um, you know worked in as a state representative in, in, in Rhode Island is now a, uh, you know acting assistant secretary of uh, in, in the Obama administration and you know he Talked about being homeless and addicted, and how his life had been changed. And he's a very engaging, intelligent, good person. When people see see people in recovery like that talking about their experience, it changes how they think. Uh, they sort of see, oh, this is what you you thought of it. You know, like this is what you're buying when you when you have a treatment agency. This is this is what we get. We get somebody who's homeless, and now they're this productive, uh, you know, successful human being. Um, and that that is often more potent than things people like me say, and I talk about science and things like that, but it doesn't have that personal narrative. Um, and I see places in the country where, where there's been success has often been because of the success of recovery advocates, or sometimes there's a politician who's in recovery and knows how to, you know, make that, you know, message come to life and can, uh, you know, get the voters to backhammer her up on it.
1: I know they, uh, West Virginia Public Media did a story. They actually did it on my hometown of one of the one of the court partnerships with addiction centers where they were trying to they were combining the CPS system with the parole system with the drug treatments and they were putting them up because they said, you know, if you don't put a family back together then what's the point of yeah. any of this. And when I wrote about it, I I tried to make the point. I was like, look, th- I think it was three families in the initial class and there were six families total. It's like that doesn't sound like a lot to you, but if you got a city of 2000 people three or four families, that's a lot of thats a lot of overlap. That's a lot of ripples in the pond. And it's so dark right now. Shouldn't we just kind of take the wins when we can get it? So even if, just like you said with those stories, don't you just start, hey, we got four families back together, and then go from there and try to pitch it that way? Because I don't know that just continually talking about numbers and dollar signs from the government is kind of going to change hearts and minds. But the pictures of those families in the front of a courtroom hugging each other because they got their kids back, I think that might penetrate a lot more than anything we can probably say flowery speech-wise, don't you think?
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what uh, people can relate to. That's how, we, uh, that's how we think, it seems like, as a species. We think in terms of individual narrative, not about really big numbers. Um, and I agree, too. You know, run towards daylight. Um, there are, you know, people point out to you, but there's people, many people are addicted who don't want treatment. They don't want to change. It's like, I know that. Um, but I know there's plenty who do. So I'm going to worry about that. The people don't want to, uh, once we've taken care of the fact that, you know, there's waiting lists in parts of the country there, or there's care but it's not very good care. Um, people are dying, waiting for it. Um, that's something, yeah, we should definitely be focusing on. And then, and then a kind of marketing in the uncynical use of that word, you know, of, uh, Letting people know, this is, a, this is a terrific product. I mean, what, is, it, is, it, is it recovery fantastic? Um, look, look at the benefits of this. Um, and I don't want to push anyone out there, because I'm not in recovery myself, and say, you know, you have to talk about it, because everyone has to make that decision for themselves. But I'm grateful for those people who do, because I think they inspire a lot of hope.
1: Are we at the peak of the opioid crisis? I know we just saw numbers. I'm, I'm sure COVID probably skewed it some. So maybe data-wise, as a scientist, it's probably going to be a couple of years before. We really know for sure. But wh- what's your feeling of it? Because you've, you've studied addiction a long time. Are we at a peak? Are we at the middle? Uh, where are we at on this thing? Because it sure seems like we're just kind of a wash in the sea right at the moment.
0: Yeah, we are not at the peak, I'm sad to say. Um, COVID has made it worse. So let's assume... Uh, you know, that uh, a year from now, COVID has, has faded. I mean, I'm not a virologist. Let's say that that, that that has happened. That will be helpful. But we have still the problem of the increasing expansion of fentanyl and the increasing mixing of stimulants, which are coming back, particularly methamphetamine uh, and, uh, with, with fentanyl. Um, but also as an independent drug coming back, and lots of people are dying from that. So, you know, if we get a, uh, a boost from the end of COVID, I think it will be a transitory boost, and we're still gonna be on this, you know, long-term upward trajectory until we reorient fairly dramatically um, how we provide the care, and also uh, that we take supply control seriously. And we have to remember that, you know, the opioid epidemic was started in the healthcare system, by um, you know, for profit, and not just for the you know opioid manufacturers, but uh, but also plenty of doctors. I'm embarrassed to say, you know, uh, profited from it. Um, that when you lose control of the supply of an addictive drug, the pain can go on for a generation. And so we have to also make sure we have um, adequate controls. And we've certainly improved on opioid prescribing, but also other types of prescribing. Benzodiazepine prescribing, you know, tranquilizers is up uh, a lot in in this century. There's people dying, about 30% of opioid overdoses, the person's also using a benzodiazepine. You could also have, you know, we prescribe stimulants. That's another thing that, you know, we need to keep careful watch on. So you have to be both worrying about the people who are already addicted, but also thinking preventively about how do we stop more of these epidemics from starting.
1: And the, I'm sure we talked about how these this fentanyl stuff is synthetic. I'm sure they're not done coming up with new synthetic drugs either. So it would probably behoove us to kind of try to get some kind of coherent policy as these things develop instead of just chasing the needle all the time. Wouldn't it be? Or is that even possible because it just changes so fast now?
0: Yeah, well, that that's actually one of the things that uh, I, I uh, discussed in the hearing and I know, I know uh, the committee is very interested in is could you schedule drugs differently. So instead of, uh, you know, tightly specifying the molecular structure to have a rule about, you know, substantially similar molecules. So people couldn't just take, you know, remifentanil and, the, and they say, all right, you can't can't be selling that online. And then just, they you know, they add their own little molecule and then the law is no longer relevant. Um, and this has been part of what has been going on. And you, know, you might write the law differently so that it would say remifentanil as well as You know, little tweaks to Remy Fentanyl would also be covered by this legislation. You can do some work on that. We also need some creative thinking about uh, the Internet Uh, and what do you do in a world when, you know, it's much easier to keep transactions a secret and huge amounts of money can be moved around fairly easily, uh, you know, on the dark web. Uh, And people can, you know, get themselves into trouble very easily, including, you know, kids you know can get access to all these things and have you know sent to the house when they're you know when their folks aren't there all that kind of stuff and you know most of law enforcement is built on a pre-internet model where you're still expecting you know someone to show up with a suitcase full of money and uh, that still happens but it happens less and less and that's going to take some new thinking that's one of the things i'm hoping uh you know to engage with the the Congress on uh, in, in the coming year is what are some new strategies we could use on the enforcement side.
1: We've talked about the government angle on this. We've talked about the scientific angle on it, the drug scheduling, things you can do with that, molecular structure of the drugs. Your expertise, though, uh, the, what got you into that, however, is the people. Uh, you are a psychiatrist. On a personal level, folks just like us, like our audience, like me, when we're dealing with our friends and loved ones on issues like this, what do we do on that interpersonal level, just us lay folks of we see the problem, we see the warning signs. What do we do? How do we handle that? Uh, I know you've written, it's been a while since you wrote it, but uh, you did write Circles of Recovery. You've talked about this before. You've had many years since then to kind of think about it. What, on just a practical level, can we do ourselves when we're working in our families and communities on these sorts of things, trying to reach people on a one on one level?
0: So, one thing to do, and I talk to people very, very often who are like just pulling their hair out, you know, over someone they love who's addicted, is to remember the limits of control you have over other people and also that you are also a person. So, I see people just destroying their mental health and racked with guilt of why can't I stop my, you know, husband from drinking or why can't I stop my, my son from using heroin. And, um, oftentimes what I do when I interact is I focus on them first. I say like, you know, um, this situation is really awful and painful. You cannot control another human being, uh, and you are falling apart yourself. So, um, don't, set yourself up to an impossible challenge and also take care of yourself. There's, I mean, there's a reason why Al-Anon is a popular organization. It's very hard to love somebody who has an addiction. Uh, and I say, you know, go, get support, be around other families who do that. The second thing you can do for people who, um, if, in terms, of, that's what you do for yourself. In terms of what you do for the, the person who's addicted, you know, you can tell them that you care about them. Um, you can certainly, you know, Tell them honestly the effect of their, their behavior on you. You can't order them around. Uh, threats will rarely work. Uh, if you're feeling very punitive, that will probably come out, and you may the interaction won't, won't go the way you, you know. So it, it won't necessarily go the way you want it to go. <clears throat> so you, you want to communicate love, expectations, um, but not uh, give orders, because that's just... Very unlikely to have the effect you want. The person still has to make a decision on their own. Um, and then all of us can show up, I mean, um, politically. So in Clarksburg, I'm sure there were people who did not want addiction treatment programs banned from Clarksburg. But I wonder, did they show up at the city council meeting and say, look, I'm in recovery. I want I, I, to, th- these programs save people's lives? Or my son is out there using drugs right now, and I'm terrified, and I want treatment to be available in Clarksburg. That's really important to show up politically on behalf of the services that support recovery. Um, take that risk, put yourself out there.
1: Yep. Do what you can with what you got for as long as you can. It applies to everything, it's going to apply to a really sticky situation like the opioid crisis, too, I suppose.
0: V- very much so. I mean, I've studied groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous for many years. And I, I have come to the conclusion that a lot of their wisdom is not particular to addiction at all. Uh, you know, it, it's good advice about, you know, figuring out which can change, which can't change, being courageous about pursuing the things you can and accepting the things you can't. That's, that's not just good advice about addiction, that's good advice about living. Um, and it applies here, uh, for sure.
1: Dr. Keith Humphreys, I've appreciated your time with this. We could talk about this for hours more, and I hope we get a chance to in the future. But let folks know where they can find you. I know I, I kind of got to be friends with you on Twitter. Uh, some of the things you have going on where they can kind of follow you going forward for both this and for your great puns and hot movie <laughs> takes of 50s monster movies.
0: Okay. So uh, you can follow me on Twitter at just... Keith, K-E-I-T-H-N uh, Humphreys, N is my middle initial, so it's all just Keith N. Humphreys on Twitter. We have a, a website at Stanford <clears throat> called Addiction Policy, that's one word, Edu, which you can see all of the work we're trying to do with state and local legislatures in, um, in, in terms of helping them use science to make better policies towards not just the illicit drugs, but also towards alcohol and tobacco, uh, and those are probably the best ways to, to keep up with what I'm doing.
1: Fantastic. Uh, You've been a great resource for me online, and you've been very kind with your time. Uh, And I appreciate you helping us out on such a tough topic. Uh, Thank you very much for your time today, sir. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I really enjoyed the conversation.
1: Thank you, sir. You know, there's a lot of people that just want to talk about politics and culture, In their little sphere of what they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about hard issues like the opioid crisis. Well, when we first started doing Hurt Tell, there was two episodes that I knew I wanted to do immediately besides just breaking news or current events or the politics of the day or who's president or legislation and things like this. One was the abuse story, and we did that with Jennifer Greenberg because it's a human issue. It's something that has to be dealt with, and whether it's politics, culture, family units, churches, whatever, you will always find abuse and abusers, and it needs to be dealt with. The other one I knew up front that I wanted to do an episode on was the opioid crisis. I'm not going to even pretend to not be biased and involved and emotionally compromised by this, because I am. I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. And... There seems to be the biggest problem with the opioid crisis is there just seems to be a lot of missing give-a-damn. Folks just don't seem to care about it as much as they do other issues. That's frustrating, but we have to control our frustration and try to do something about it. But we know do something can often lead to bad things as well. So I, I don't even know how to do the coda to this episode because this is going to continue. Like Dr. Humphrey said, we're not even probably in the middle of this, let alone the peak of this. Humans are always going to find a way to mess themselves up for whatever reason, whether they have pain in their lives, emotional, physical. They're going to find a way to chemically try to do things that become addictive. It's happened throughout human history. It will continue to happen. But as we have technological resources now... Maybe instead of just tackling it like a problem of numbers and medicine and science, like Dr. Humphreys was saying, we should attack this more as a human interest problem. Because with things like social media, if we accentuate things like recovery, like stories of hope, we give people hope that these folks can be helped. Maybe that's the way we get into it. Maybe that's the tool that humanity has always lacked because we can take videos of recovered people. We can make them go viral. We can put it out there. We can show these families being put back together and communities healing a little bit and not just all the bad parts. Maybe that's something we can try. Does the government have a role in that? Probably, and we can discuss that. Look, I'm still mostly a small government guy. I'm no Jacobin Revolutionary. But this is probably one of those issues where we're all going to have to examine our politics a little bit and just get all hands on deck and try to solve it. Because there's nobody that doesn't have a little bit of blame to share here. The drug companies have a lot of the blame. Municipalities have some of the blame for some of their policies. Our family units where maybe we're not seeing things ahead of time and preventing certain things, we probably have some blame too. And the government that let these companies get away with these things for years and years and years while regulation and oversight lagged definitely has something to say about it. law enforcement system, which needs all kinds of other reforms, is definitely not equipped to deal very well with addiction. And the war on drugs, we know what that has done in the criminal justice system and what that's done to every kind of community from minorities to the poor, to name whoever you want to. We're not good at dealing with things like this because they're multifaceted and we as our culture demand a one-size-fits-all problem, and that usually means somebody else spending a bunch of money so that we don't have to think about it. That's not going to work with the opioid crisis. So what does that got to do with a culture and politics podcast? Well, everything. Because if whatever your ideology or political priors are, if they can't be molded down to deal with an issue like the opioid crisis, then you don't really have a political ideology. You're just spectating. You're just watching things happen. So maybe you should adjust what you think in your priors because if you can't solve the most complex of human issues like addiction and the opioid crisis, what are you even doing? Do you even care? A lot of people honestly would answer that question and say, no, they don't. But those of us that do, like Dr. Humphreys was saying, we can find some rays of light. Maybe we could actually do something good here. Maybe we can save those one or two people who become an inspiration to save many, many more. What do you want to do with your culture and politics? Do you want to just throw rocks at the TV? Do you just want to tweet about that idiot politician that doesn't really affect your life hardly at all? Or do you want to actually have an ideology where you make your homes, communities, and family better? And by extension, if we all do that, we can make our country and world better. That's what I want to do. As long as we're doing herd tell, those are the stories we're going to tell. We're going to deal with these hard issues in an adult conversation, grown folk talk with the noise turned down because that's how you affect change. And even if you only get one of them and that one more than you had before, isn't that worth it? And At least you can say you did that much. Because when we look back on this time period in history that is well recorded because of all the technology we have and your children and grandchildren ask you what you did when something like the opioid crisis was at its worst, What are you going to tell them? Oh, I sent a tweet about it. That ain't going to hack it. Be proactive now. Wouldn't you rather say that you did something at the turning of the tide than just saying, oh, I wrote a diary entry as the world burned? That's what I want to do, and that's what I hope you want to do. It's frustrating. I'm mad. I have trouble keeping my bearing talking about this topic, but we're going to keep talking about it because it involves lives, it involves people we love, It involves our families, our communities, and our country that we should all care about. Yeah, maybe that person made a bad decision to put some junk inside their system that could possibly kill them, but the ripple effects of that affect everybody. And if we don't do something about it, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And instead of just demanding somebody else do something about it, why don't we start with that mirror we're always talking about and figure out what we can do first. And the first thing we can do is understand the problem. And keep talking to people like Dr. Humphreys who have spent a lifetime trying to do something about it so that we can tell others. That's it for this edition of Herd Tell. A little bit of a heavy topic, but that's what we do here. You have found us. We just crossed a thousand downloads. Thank you so much. Wherever you're listening to this, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn. I can't even name them all. It's a long list now. We're on all those platforms. If they give you the option to give a rating and leave a comment, please do. That's very, very important for people to be able to find us. It also tells those platforms who to promote and who to show that program to others. It's a big deal to us. It's a few clicks in a moment of your time. We'd really appreciate you doing that for us. Also, if you care to share us on social media, we'd really appreciate it on the Twitter, at Herd Tell Show. If you want to email us, give us some feedback. Hurtelshow at gmail.com. We'd love to read your email. We will answer it. We will get back to you. You guys are the best. We thank you so much. Wherever you are across the street and around the world, we hope this finds you and yours well. Until we talk to you again, y'all take care. All the music on Hurtel is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com.